0: Thanks for downloading the UW Alumni Voice podcast. I'm your host, Josh Van Campen. Today's guest is Harriet Riley. Harriet is a climate specialist and award-winning writer who works in communication and advocacy for UNICEF at the UN. Prior to this, she was a senior strategist with Purpose, a consultancy advising NGOs like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Doctors of the World and the UN Environment on challenges from international development to renewable energy. She was a consultant on Years of Living Dangerously, Emmy Award winning series about climate change and has written five screenplays for TV film projects about social environment. It's a really great chat with Harriet. She really gives you a bit of a blueprint in regards to how she got to where she is. She has a love for study. She has a love for travel and she wants to make a huge impact on the world. And I think you're really going to enjoy our conversation. Live from Brooklyn, New York, would like to welcome Harriet Riley. Harriet, how are you doing?
1: I'm really well. How are you?
0: Now, all is well. All is well here in Perth. And uh, thank you so much for giving up your time to have a chat with us on the Alumni Voices podcast. And we're going to get straight into it. Now, When you studied at UWA, not only did you study at UW undergrad, but you studied abroad in Copenhagen, you completed your honours at ANU in Canberra. You then moved to New York to do some study at Columbia. Uh, Have you always had a passion for learning and travel?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the travel comes before the learning. You know, you want to go somewhere and you get really excited by it. And then you go there and you find that you're learning. So for me... The biggest experiences when I went overseas were not the actual educational experiences themselves, though the universities that I was at were really, really good. The biggest learnings that I had were from the cultures that I was slowly finding myself integrating into and learning about. So when I picked Copenhagen for my exchange, for example, I was picking it because I knew that Denmark had a really interesting approach to its social policy and to its environmental policy And I knew that if I went there to study, that I'd kind of pick that up. So that's why I made that choice. You know, the takeaways were, you know, really, really fantastic from that. And you kind of don't realize how much you're learning and how much you're getting out of it until years later, when you realize you've grown this huge network of people all around the world who are, can help you in your career and can help you in your education. And at the time you were just having fun and uh, muddling through it as a young person, but then you come out as this kind of seasoned uh, world traveler that you didn't know you were.
0: So when you were making these connections while you are were overseas, were, were you strategically connecting with people or was it just simply organically happening?
1: No, it was organically happening because you're connecting with people who are your own age. So you don't know who anybody is yet or what they're going to be. But then you find out five years later that they're running this organization or that they're working in this really cool job and they're part of your network because you became friends because you were both the kind of person who was willing to kind of Uh, take that risk and go to that place and, you know, have those experiences together.
0: Now, one thing I'm really curious about is you were a consultant on the Years of Living Dangerously, an American documentary television series focusing on global warming. Uh, It won an Emmy Award. For outstanding documentary or nonfiction series, it's crazy. The executive producers included James Cameron and Arnold Schwarzenegger. The weekly episodes featured celebrity hosts with a history of environmental activism and well-known journalists with a background in environmental reportage. Now, was did your connections help get provide this opportunity for you as a consultant on Years of Living Dangerously?
1: Um, it came through my studies at Columbia. So I was at uh, you know this really famous university in America. And the professors at universities like that in the States are the kind of people who used to work for big networks or used to work for big production companies. And so I got that role as a result of that. So in a way, it came through the network. Um, as well as through the education
0: so what was your role as a consultant on the documentary series
1: so I started out as an intern as their very very first intern when the project was still in its infancy and in those days it was this idea that nobody really wanted to take on because all these big networks were very scared to put on a primetime show about climate change because this was still the period um, when there was a lot of denial and a lot of anxiety that you know If you, you know, if you put on a show about climate change, advertisers like car companies and energy companies wouldn't want to run their adverts with you. So for years, nobody would pick the show up. So we spent a long time in what's called pre-production, which is where you do a lot of research and a lot of writing and you contact a lot of people and you pitch the idea to them, but nobody wants to make it. And then finally, we started to get traction. Finally, somebody was brave enough to take a chance on us. And that was showtime. And we were able to make this really special, really important show. And my role as a consultant, uh, after they promoted me from being an intern, was very, uh, you know, it was a kind of jack of all trades kind of job. You would look at, um, you know, who the presenters should be and you would research the stories and you would plan the shoots. And what I learned from that is that, if you want to do something that's really new and really different, it's going to take you a really long time because there's a lot of people who aren't going to believe in you and who aren't going to kind of come along for the journey. So you need to have a lot of stamina and stick it out in order to make sure that the cool thing finally gets done.
0: So what was it like a nine to five gig? Cause I'm guessing that in something like that, that you'd be working some really crazy hours. You'd be working weekends. You'd be jumping both feet in, into it. Was that how it was?
1: Yeah, more or less. I mean, the, the first part before we actually had a deal was very much just nine to five, you know? And it was like any other office job and you'd come in and you do a lot of research and a lot of meetings and a lot of talking and hope that it would go somewhere. And then finally, when we actually got the production deal, that's when things started to get a little bit more involved um, and you would have to go out on and that sort of thing. Um, but because I wasn't a producer, I wasn't involved in any of that. Um, and I was only there for the pre-production phase where we were doing all that preparation which ultimately got turned into the show itself.
0: Amazing. Now, did you, everyone's going to want to know, did you get to meet James Cameron?
1: Hilariously, James Cameron was filming his documentary series about the Mariana Trench at the time. So he <laughs> spent the whole pre-phase at the bottom of the ocean in a submarine. Wow. So I never met him. And- <laughs> Yeah, people always ask me like, "Oh my god, your first ever boss was James Cameron." I'm like, "Yeah, he was in a submarine, so we never saw him." Before.
0: That's all a pretty cool story to, to share, though. Even though you didn't meet him, that's a pretty cool. That's a pretty cool story to share.
1: It was like this crazy situation where we'd go to meetings to try and pitch the show, and we'd be like, "The executive producer is James Cameron," and they'd be like, "Where is he?" And we'd be like, "Well, he can't be here because he's at the bottom of the ocean."
0: <laughs> That's fantastic. You clearly care deeply about climate change, but it, you know, in, in your current role at UNICEF, uh, when you're not in the office, you're actually doing preparing some screenwriting TV projects about the environment. So, you've been crafting some plot lines for Brooklyn '99 and, and Homeland for people to understand the challenges with, with climate change. um Why are you targeting shows like these to share your message?
1: Totally. So, one of my big takeaways from working on the Years of Living Dangerously project was that it was documentary series, and the kind of people who watch a documentary about climate change are the kind of people who already care about climate change. But the big challenge with this issue is you want to bring other people on board who maybe don't already think about this as a priority issue for them. Um, so you can get onto shows that are a bit more mainstream, that like have millions of viewers, and show them that climate change is something that matters to their favorite characters, who are people like them, uh, you're going to kind of win over a lot more people to want to take action in their lives. Climate change often feels like this kind of very distant thing uh, that's happening to polar bears or it's happening to people in other countries, not to you and me. Um, but that's starting to change now, and I think we're seeing the impacts in our own lives more. Um, so it's really important to use TV to kind of highlight yeah, this is something that happens to you and people like you. But the big question is what can you do about it? Because if you tell somebody that something big and frightening is happening out there in the world and you don't give them something that they can do about it, uh, you may as well not have told them because uh, they're just going to forget that you said this big scary thing because there's nothing that they can do. So one of the really important things that we try and feature in these stories is um, the solutions and what people are actually doing and therefore what the audience can kind of do to you know, move the needle on this issue themselves.
0: Is that the biggest misconception about climate change that you can't change, I guess, the inevitable?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think there's a lot of people who are skipping straight from denial into, oh, well, there's nothing we can do without passing through the middle phase, which we really want them to go through, which is, oh, my God, we have to fight this thing. Um, And the truth is we can fight it and that all of the kind of technologies and solutions are available. It's just a matter of us standing up for them and saying, hey, this is something that we want. This is something we can do uh it's just tricky if nobody's telling you how to do that so a big part of what we want to do is show people like the role that they can play the answer is you know there are some things that you can do in your own life like all the classic stuff recycling cycling all that stuff we already know about but the even cooler and more exciting things that you can do are to get involved like politically uh, and kind of call for more policy action and more legal action on the issue by working with like the non and the NGOs that are out there doing
0: that. Is there a challenge that you're also dealing with that simply just not enough people care?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what we're at a place now where a lot of people care but they don't know what to do. Sure. So, like, we're trying to fill in that gap. We're trying to connect all those people who are concerned but kind of don't know what to do with their concern to a place where it's like, hey, we've worried about this for a long time, but nobody's shown you that you were the powerful one and that you were the person who can really go somewhere with this. We want to kind of like bridge that gap and say, here are the things that you can do.
0: Now, you work for UNICEF in your role there. And you know, UNICEF is the United Nations Children's Fund as an advocacy specialist. Uh, can you explain to those that are listening what the role entails?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So UNICEF is the UN's probably the oldest agency at the UN and it's certainly one of the biggest um, we 're responsible for purchasing one third of the world 's vaccines, and we do everything to do with children, so whether that 's you know vaccinating them against uh, preventable illnesses, uh, helping to build schools, um, helping children in conflict zones, um, ending child marriage, ending child labor you name it, we work on it. Um, kids are kind of the key to development because if you can influence somebody 's life when they 're young. Uh, you're setting them up for uh, everything good to happen for them in the future. Um, so what I do in my advocacy role is rather than working as a program officer, who are the people who are actually out there, you know, vaccinating the kids, or building the schools, I try and work with governments to convince them how to do that sort of thing and why they should do that sort of thing. And a big part of convincing governments that they need to act on a problem is convincing the public that a government should act on a problem. So we spend a lot of our time educating the public about these issues and saying, hey, this is why this is important. This is what you can do about it. This is what your government should be doing about it. Do you want to get involved?
0: So how important is educating the public on these things? Because Especially, you know, you touched on, you know, the participation of of the youth involved, these, and you know, the political and social justice issues that that you're trying to tackle. I mean, how much of your job is about education?
1: It's a really big chunk of it because if people don't know what's going on, there's nothing they can do about it. And once they know what's going on, then you have to, like I said, with the climate change stuff, you know, you've got to give them something they can do about it. Uh, Otherwise, they don't, you know, remember that you told them or, uh, you know, feel empowered in any way. So the single biggest role that people can play is usually influencing their government. It's usually the way that they vote, uh, you know, signing petitions, making phone calls, going to rallies and events. But there are also things that are more immediate that they can do in their own lives, such as volunteering, uh, such as donating, uh, such as just uh, helping to educate other people by sharing stuff on social media. So what we're always trying to do is provide, like, a really wide range of action. So that depending on where you're at, in terms of the time you have available to you or the issues that you care about, there's always something that you can do, whether it's big or small, that's gonna have an impact.
0: Now, you've been having quite an impact on on the world uh, for quite a few years now. I mean, you could probably go back to when you interned for the Australian mission to the United Nations. How important was that role to you and how important is volunteering and internships just for, for students as well that are looking to have a career like yours?
1: In general, they're really, really important because they help you test out what you're actually good at and what you're actually interested in. One of the best pieces of advice that I ever received was when you're in your early 20s and your mid-20s and you're just starting to enter your career and figure it out, you should kind of behave like a scientist testing a hypothesis and say, I think that I'd be a good journalist. So I'm gonna go and try journalism and see if that's true. Or I think that I'd be a good diplomat. So I'm gonna go and try diplomacy and see if that's true. And by the time you're 30, like I am, you've trialed a lot of things through internships and through volunteering, and you've found that where your real skills lie um, and your real interests are. And then you can kind of double down on those and like turn that into your future career. Um, so my internship with the Australian Mission, for example, was hugely educational because I realized how a mission like that actually works. And by doing internships like that, I was like, oh, there are some things here that I'm really good at, but some things here that I'm just not interested in. So now I know that I need to focus on a job that's going to want me to the stuff that I'm really good at uh, and less of the stuff that's kind of double to me. Um, and then just kind of go from there.
0: So, did you always have a passion, passion for learning, and passion for making an impact in the world during your time and your experience at, at UWA as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I was at UWA, I joined uh, the UN, the Model UN club, like the organisation that was doing UN stuff at UWA. Back then, I was kind of like, "Oh, it's a bit of a fantasy to work at the UN." And often, you think when you're young and you're just studying out in your education, your career that this stuff is not necessarily going to be easy, but it, it's not going to take you long, right? It's going to be like two, three years, and then that'll be your job. And then what you learn over the next, you know, 10 to 15 years is it's actually really hard to go where you want to go. And you have to try a lot of things and you have to go to a lot of different places before you can make it work to get into that career that you really want. And yet then you turn around like me 10 years later and you have got the career that you really want. And you're getting really, really close to those goals that you set yourself uh, a long time ago. Um, So like the big lesson, kind of the same as the lesson that I was talking about in years of living dangerously is it takes a really long time to do something good. Maybe you think it's only going to take a couple of months or a couple of years. But once you put the effort in and you learn all these different things from all these different places, you kind of come out in this place that you were always aiming for uh, and you're much better for it much better for all the experiences you had along the way.
0: It sounds like you've got to have a lot of patience as, as well.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. You've got to have so much stamina because you will get defeated, you know, and there will be jobs that you apply for, that you get turned down for. You'll get turned down for internships. You'll submit something for publication and they'll say no. Uh, I constantly remind myself with my writing, for example, that, you know, all those famous stories about JK Rowling getting rejected 16 times before anybody took Harry's otter. Um, There are other stories about the most successful screenwriters in the world, maybe one in five things that they write actually gets made, and they're the most successful people on the planet. So the only things that anybody else sees are the successes, but you kind of know about the failures that are there in the background. Um, But failures are really important. They get you to the successes. And the sooner you learn that, the better off you are.
0: So have you had many failures in your life? Because I think if someone would simply go to your LinkedIn profile and go, wow, Harriet's just had this amazing career and this journey. And as you said, everyone kind of hears the success stories. When hasn't it been successful for you?
1: I think like for every job you get, there were 15 other jobs that you applied for that you didn't get. And I think one of the biggest challenges for me over the years is other than that and just like maintaining the kind of willingness to keep submitting keep submitting and keep submitting until you get the job you want is the fact that sometimes you get the job you want and then it's no fun. And you're like, wait a minute, I thought this was my dream job and it's not. And that's happened to me a couple of times, um, which is one of the reasons I've worked in so many different industries. You know, you go, oh, I'm going to be really great at this. And then you try it and you're not that great at it. Or you think it's going to be really exciting, but it's actually really boring. And so you keep trying until you find the thing that actually does suit you. I think the other big thing is that sometimes you do get a job that's really amazing and that you could be really good at but if you don't stick with it and learn how to do it then you're not going to succeed um because it takes you a really long time to learn to get good at anything career is a lot like a sport uh you have to practice and practice and practice and practice until you're really good at it and you know when you're in your 20s you're not good yet you know, you just have to wait uh, and put in the hours and then you will be and then you'll start to get where you want to be.
0: Is that what you, is that the type of advice you would give to a student or maybe a recent graduate that's listening to this podcast and see your career journey and says to themselves, oh, I just want to be like, Harry." is that exactly what you would say or is there maybe another bit of advice you'd provide them?
1: Yeah, I would definitely say that. And the one thing that I'd add to it is be honest with yourself about what you really want to do. Because there are going to be things that distract you. You're going to think, oh, well, this is more prestigious or this is going to make me more money or all my friends are doing this. So maybe I should go and do that. But the more you can focus on the things you really love and really care about, the more likely you are to succeed, because that's what's going to get you out of bed in the morning is the knowledge that you're doing something that you're good at, that you really care about. Now, it might take you a while to figure out what that is, but if you keep running those tests like a scientist to figure out what that is, you're going to get there and then you're going to be okay.
0: So what does the future look like for you? Because it seems like you're you're probably in a lot of people's dream job and you're working in your dream job. Is is this where you want to be or do you feel like that there's some other future career aspirations for you as well?
1: It is, yeah. And like once you start to, you know, get good at one thing, uh, you know, you've got the option of keeping on going in that position or of like trying something new again. And for me, what I want to do is I want to keep going in this position, but I want to keep working on my other passion, which is my writing and finding a way to blend those two things uh, effectively. So I'm still in this world of NGOs and diplomacy, but keeping up my interest and my talent for screenwriting. And I think that's completely possible because all the inspiration that I get from my writing comes from my job because I'm writing about the same issues that I'm working on during the You know, I'll, you know, be at the office and I'll be working on some big project about climate change and then I'll come home and I'll know how to write my screenplay about climate change. So some people will tell you you need to focus on one thing. Some people will tell you that you should do multiple things. I still don't know yet. I think that's the big next lesson for me Um, in my 30s is whether a person should focus or a person should have more than one career. Uh, Maybe in 10 years time, I'll be able to tell you Uh, But that's the big next step for me.
0: Really good. That's really great. Now, that's all the time we have, Harriet. Now, if people want to be able to follow your journey or um, get insight into what you're doing at UNICEF, how can people find that?
1: Encourage everybody to follow UNICEF on Twitter. We've got a really fun, really interesting Twitter feed, which is going to tell you about all sorts of different issues that you might be interested in. Uh, We've also got a really great Instagram. Um, And if you want to follow me, I'm on Twitter. I'm at HarrietLR01.
0: Perfect. Awesome. Well, Harriet, thank you so much for your time today. I think everyone absolutely, absolutely loved listening to your career journey. And thank you for joining us. I know it's uh, hopefully it's a beautiful night there in Brooklyn and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you soon.
1: No worries. Thank you so much.